0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is
1: Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Vendors who want to move to the front of the approval line for FedRAMP have two extra weeks now to make their cases. The General Services Administration says it's extending the deadline because of how many calls it's getting from vendors for help. NextGov reports, GSA says it's already chosen five companies to skip the line and would like to find seven more. A patch is available tonight for the Pulse Connect Secure vulnerability the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency alerted agencies to last week. That alert reported five agencies were investigating breaches. Breaking defense reports, CISA says 24 agencies use Pulse Connect Secure. New fleet wide guidance from the Navy sets a 50% limit on office occupancy across the service. A memo Defense One obtained says the Navy will hold at half occupancy until infection rates in the area around an installation fall below two new cases per 100,000 population in the area for a week. The Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey says employees are more engaged and like their bosses more than before the pandemic. Federal leaders are using those numbers to strategize. What comes next? Emily Murphy is a former administrator of the General Services Administration. Emily, welcome. It's good to see you. What do you make of the numbers from your agency and across government as you go through them?
2: Well, first of all, Francis, I'm thrilled. Uh, It means that we did right by federal employees during a really incredibly difficult time and over the course of the administration. So if you look at the improvement, that didn't all happen overnight. At GSA, we went from a 72 overall in 2016 to 83 in 2020. Our intrinsic work went from 74 to 83. We went from 61 to 78 on leaders lead and 81 to 89 on supervisors, um, that employees trusted their supervisors. I mean, that's a great set of metrics to look at over four years. It's especially great when you look at at the leap in the last year and I think it means that we really listened to our employees. We tried to address the needs that they were raising as well as those that we were anticipating and that we kept acting on the uh, feedback we were getting from them and doing a better job each and every time.
1: There were two of those numbers in particular I wanna ask you about. A colleague in government comes to you still in and says, Emily, we need to move leaders lead and we need to move employees trust their supervisors. What do you recommend to somebody in those particular areas to do to move those numbers? Not going to happen in a year. I agree with what you said there. It's going to take time. But how do you start that process or how do you turbocharge a process that's already underway?
2: So with Leaders Lead, I think the real key last year was that we talked to our employees more than we have at any point in time. I was sending out a message a week. I was doing two to three town halls a week with different parts of the agency. No one in the agency went more than a couple of months without actually having the chance to ask me a question. Um, respond, you know, we really encouraged them to email us to Allison Bergotti, who's my deputy. So we really um, did a lot in trying to make sure that there were multiple channels that employees could reach the leaders at GSA. And then we responded to it. We didn't just take that data and we then each and every time we go back and say, here's what we've heard, here's what we're doing. We're doing in response to it. So I think that was the key in moving the leaders lead number, I would like to say it's because we made all these great decisions on telework and everything else. But I think it was really that we listened to our employees. I think the same thing was true with supervisors. We gave them the authority, we listened to them first of all, and gave them the authority to actually be supervisor. And they knew we had their backs. But we had their backs in a way we said, you know, there's a no jerks policy also. and that gave them the ability to go in there and do their jobs. We trusted them and they lived up to that expectation.
1: One of the big pieces of your portfolio as administrator was the public building service. I think it gets overlooked because of the emphasis on the acquisition piece, at least in coverage and outlets like mine um, way too much. What do you take away from these numbers, especially the telework the enthusiasm for telework and remote work about the way organizations should think about floor plans, facilities, Uh, the the back-to-the-office movement that's uh, likely about to get underway, all of that, Emily?
2: So if you look at the numbers from pre-pandemic, it said that 55% of employees were not teleworking. If you look at the height of the pandemic, only 20% weren't teleworking. And of those, it was 2% because they didn't receive approval and 2% because they didn't want to. We're now, at the end of the survey, they were back up to 26%. And that was, again, a combination of, of employees who didn't want to telework, those who couldn't get approval to telework, that came down uh, dramatically from 19% to 4%. And the overall of those who felt they had to be present went from 24% to 18%. What that means overall is that of that 371 million square feet of office space that GSA has, that they don't need as much and that they could save billions of dollars by reducing that space, but not only save money, it will make employees happier. And it's actually one of the most environmentally friendly things we can do is to encourage telework because one of the number one drivers of emissions is actually people commuting to and from their offices. So it's it, it's better for employees, better for the environment and it's fiscally very sound.
1: What do you expect to see uh, as this transition happens? What do you think that a typical, if there is such a thing, what do you think of a typical federal workspace especially a headquarters workspace in Washington looks like three years from now or five years from now, Emily.
2: So if I were in charge, which I'm not, I would think <laughs> that your, your federal workspace would be meeting rooms where you could have meetings with the public. And you're gonna want more of those. You want more skiff space so you can do classified work that can't be done at home. You want space where you can have private meetings one-on-one with the public as well or, or with other government employees. What you need less and less of, though, is your standard workstation and your standard desk or office configuration. So I would see those federal office buildings becoming more hubs for meetings than actually places where people go and just sit at a desk and work.
1: Emily Murphy, thanks very much, as always.
2: Thank you so much, Francis. It's great being
1: with you. Up next, the major maintenance costs that could keep F-35s on the ground. Straight ahead on Government Matters, salvaging the most expensive weapons system ever. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The most expensive weapon system in history has a new cost problem. The Government Accountability Office says the F-35 will cost more to maintain and operate than the services can afford over the life of the aircraft. Richard Abolafia is Vice President of Analysis at the Teal Group. Richard, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do we know about where this program is operationally, where the hardware and software is today?
3: Well, not as bad as the headlines would indicate. You know, there have been some major hurdles and challenges, but almost everything at this point is sort of on the back end of the plane, operating, maintaining, and uh, perhaps most of all, upgrading it over the years. From a production standpoint, the costs have come down considerably, uh, pretty much in line with exactly what was expected. The basic vanilla A model is now about $77 million a copy. Uh, And meanwhile, nearly 700 aircraft have been built. So this is a full-fledged, relatively successful production program, despite all the challenges in getting it up and running. However, there are serious cost challenges in sustaining it.
1: And what does the fact that it's that far into the production cycle mean for that, that sustainability cost discussion, do you think? I mean, if the... If if we've if we built about a third or so of the amount of planes that we expected to build in the life cycle of the program, but we can't afford the two thirds that remain to be built, it, it really I think that that's the kind of the crux of the conversation about where the department is, isn't it, Richard?
3: Yeah, on, on several levels, that's that's exactly it. You know, to a certain extent, uh, it makes it more challenging to uh, well put leverage on the contractors. To get the cost down when they know you know this is their program there's going to be thousands in service they have to sustain it you know there's not that much uh pressure on the other hand um congress dod and everyone else involved needs to think now about what they need to do in terms of putting that competitive pressure on the f-35 program and there are a number of possibilities you know there are rumors to be um already flying prototypes for a sixth generation fighter under the uh the engad program and not only that there are rumors of something in the black world something secret in generation 4.5 a kind of lower cost competitive challenger so part of the debate is whether or not some of the procurement dollars for all of these f-35s should be shifted towards uh, tactical aircraft alternatives
1: I want to shift gears because the implication for what you're talking about there goes across the entire aircraft sector. Um, Boeing's one of the largest government contracts. They reported not great earnings numbers uh, last week. What do you take away from overall, from the the health of the defense industrial base, the the aerospace sector in particular right now, Richard?
3: Well, you're right to focus on Boeing because they're in their own unique world of pain uh, obviously they uh, they were the world's biggest uh, commercial jetliner contractor and because of the covid-19 pandemic uh well the, the pain has been very severe with numbers falling by 50% and even before that they had the 737 max disaster but on top of that uh, a lot of their gains in recent years in the defense sector had been purchased on the back of profitability basically they submitted very aggressive bids so they've had some serious losses, uh, particularly on the KC46 tanker program, also on the T7 trainer. And uh, they're, they're in danger, frankly, of losing that part of their business as a profitability safe haven. Uh, so there've been challenges to across the, the board. Most other companies in the aerospace and defense sector are a lot healthier uh, for a variety of reasons. They weren't as aggressive commercially, they have less commercial exposure, There are areas of concern, particularly for companies in that commercial jetliner supply chain. But from the defense side, uh, things are things are reasonably healthy.
1: What do we know, if anything, Richard, about what the supply chain looks like, not particularly at Boeing, but across the aerospace sector? as a result of COVID-19. Are those supply chains starting to, uh, to regenerate themselves? Are they starting to get healthy again? Have they already gotten healthy? Are they still uh, a ways away? What, what does that look like right now, Richard?
3: Well, it's very spotty. Uh, you know, to their credit, um, when COVID-19 hit, um, the prime contractors working with DOD moved to accelerate payments to uh, the various supplier companies. And that was very helpful as an initiative, but it turned out even though that was helpful upfront, now it is a lot less necessary because frankly, the availability of financing capital for a lot of these companies has been a lot better than expected. I think people were expecting or fearing a kind of 2008 credit crunch and that never really materialized. There's a lot of cash sloshing around out there. So even though there have been one or two companies that have had real issues uh, because of the pressure on the commercial jetliner side of the house. The defense ones, they're in pretty good shape. They've been able to conduct their affairs pretty well, get access to cash. And it really helps that, you know, compared to the 2002 commercial jetliner downturn, the defense budget is almost three times as large in terms of procuring weapons compared to back then. So it's a much better environment. In short, it all comes down to the more defense exposure you've got as a supplier, the healthier you are.
1: We have about 30 seconds left, Richard. What would you watch in the next uh, month, two months, as the, uh, the uh, appropriations and authorization process rolls out?
3: It's going to be really interesting, of course, the unveiling of the defense budget, uh, hopefully in the next, next couple of months. People are expecting, you know, a 1.7 percent roughly increase, uh, maybe not keeping pace with inflation. But inflation numbers are going to be hugely important because we're seeing that appear, uh, we don't know how much, but that could pre- put pressure on uh, defense company contracts and, uh, and profitability as well.
1: Richard Abalafia, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Up next, a new twist on Public Service Recognition Week. Straight ahead on Government Matters, honoring public servants. After a year like no other, you're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Federal employee engagement is up this year despite the challenges from the pandemic. About three quarters of federal employees say their work gives them a sense of personal accomplishment. Max Steyers, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, he's writing about public service in GovExec with Craig Newmark. Max, welcome. It's good to see you again. Happy Public Service Recognition Week to you. What'd you take away from the FEVS numbers? Anything that jumped out at you? A lot and it begins with saying thank you to an amazing set of of public servants in
4: government those survey numbers uh, are astonishing in the fact that we just have been going through the most difficult period certainly in our lifetimes from uh, uh, public health issues and our government has performed remarkably well and the workforce has been motivated uh, and and driven uh, to achieve mission despite all the challenges that those numbers um, demonstrate how lucky we are to have uh, the, the workforce that we do.
1: What do you make of the big difference between the satisfaction levels with employees who work remotely and the folks that had to come into the office? How much of that do you think we can attribute to the actual work location? And how much of it is the types of jobs that people still had to come into the office to do even during a public health crisis? So um, we see historically that the engagement numbers, the morale numbers
4: are typically higher for those that have been teleworking. So uh, obviously we went from 3% to 60% self-reported teleworking consistently, at, at, you know, a huge change at the drop of a, of a, of, of, of a single moment. Um, but I think that the norms are that uh, most folks are um, getting work done and getting work done in a better way if they have that flexibility of operating remotely. And so, yes, there are, you know, uh, certain communities, the intelligence community, those that work with classified material that they can't really telework in this way. But I think one of the most important takeaways here is that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can actually get the work of, of government done very effectively and have a more engaged workforce. If we reimagine not just during a pandemic, but in, in normal times, a workforce that is Operating frequently uh, remotely. And to me, uh, this is a moment where we can actually take the innovation that has been driven by necessity and use it to reimagine our government in a way that is going to be more powerful going forward.
1: What's the role of organizations like yours, Max, to do that reimagining? How can you help agencies think through what normal looks like in January of 2023 or January of 2026?
4: So a good example of that is we actually put out a report identifying uh, all these bright spots that are occurring across government right now, and you know part of our goal, and this is part of our methodology, is to find what's right with government. It's you know, the, you know the normal infrastructure is always looking for problems. You need to know where the problems are, but even more important is you need to know where the solutions are. And by identifying bright spots, you have a much better chance of actually helping the entire organization get better. So. That's one place that we believe we can help uh, in consistently. We're also advocating um, for agencies to see this as a, a moment of reform. Uh, I think we can see a government, one of the great examples of this is telemedicine. where We saw almost a 2000% increase in telemedicine at the VA. Something that again, was required by necessity. You couldn't have people coming in in the same way, but offers huge opportunities for improved healthcare and better access over time, if done right. Uh, so, you know, we need to again harness and, and harvest those innovations and make those the future state going
1: forward. I'm old fashioned, I like paper, and I have a printout of that report on my desk max. It's four, five, maybe six pages of bright spots that you found during the pandemic, not all related to the pandemic, I don't believe, but just success stories that are happening despite what's going on. One of the ways that you help highlight those success stories is the Service to America medals every year, new round of Sammy's finalists that we learned about uh, on Monday. What jumps out at you in that class this year? So it's uh, overwhelming uh, and we have a new
4: category um, you know, of, of pandemic response, incredible people that are going to be recognized there, uh, but it's across the board. One of the other things that is so remarkable is obviously the entire government, the entire government was focused on pandemic response, whether it was health related or economic issues or uh, just uh, security of people. But at the same time, all the other functions of government were ongoing and they were going on at a time in which the value of that work was even more important and people were doing exceptional things, even though they themselves were having to deal with the challenges of the the pandemic. And we will be uh, releasing uh, the finalists in a really, I think, uh, attractive video uh, form uh, on Wednesday at, at 1230. And I hope as many of your viewers will come look at that as possible because I think they will they'll be excited by what they see.
1: Less than a minute left, Max. You've been very kind over the years. It's been a decade or more that I've had the chance to meet these Sammy's finalists, uh, both on the radio and now on television. I'm grateful for that. What do we know yet, if anything, about what might be different about the gala this year? Because it's one of my favorite events in Washington every year.
4: So our intent is to come back to a, a physical gala and uh, to do the virtual. I mean, what we saw is by doing the film we did last year, we had... I don't know what the number is, a thousand X, whatever it is, people get to see it. Uh, And so we intend to do the same thing this year and make sure that we can also have the intimate gathering uh, safely uh, as well in the fall. So we, we, again, we we feel like we've been a lemonade factory. Uh, We learned a lot, we're gonna continue to do the virtual and marry it to a physical event as well. Um, And, you know, we need to get the word out. So, uh, you know, gov exec ran a nice piece with Craig Newmark uh, you know, uh, extolling the, the, the value of public service. We need as many voices speaking up as possible um, because we need a government working as best as possible and recognizing when things happen well is vital to a government working well.
1: Max, we're going to put a link to your piece uh, with Craig Newmark at govmatters.tv slash resources. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for all that you're doing.
2: I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune in to the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn.
1: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit GovMatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
5: offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want to. Here's where I want to go over the
1: next 10 to 15 years." Time is of the essence. It strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning. First of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
5: Well, I I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to stop stop the presses